Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, I will be speaking with Amy Kilstrom, Associate Professor of History at Sonoma State University. Her book, The Religion of Democracies, Seven Liberals in the American Moral Tradition, published by Penguin Press, is a topic of this show. Kilstrom has given us seven profiles of individuals in their circle who embody the ideas of what she names an American Reformation beginning with John Adams, who believed every man had a duty to think for himself, the Jane Adams, who went beyond Christian charity to live among the poor, the book shows us how these seven individuals combined liberalism and moral values to create a post-Christian religion of democracy. The American Reformation was the process of moving from Protestant orthodoxy and dogma to instituting the values of equality, liberty, and democracy within the social and political structures of the nation. These Americans combine the classic liberal values of reason and scientific inquiry with elements of Reformed Christianity, such as free will and equality before God, while rejecting the Calvinist teaching of human depravity. These ideals were not only political, but a social practice and a progressive vision of society. In the process, liberals acquired a reputation for discarding religion for a mere moral relativism. Rather than godless, Kittlestrom presents us with individuals whose concern for moral values were derived from the religious roots. Kittlestrom argues that the democratic ethos of her subjects, valuing the individual as both free and equal, was due to their reconstituted religious beliefs rather than a rejection of religion. The religion of democracy provides the reader an opportunity to consider the religious and moral sensibilities of the liberal tradition in America. Here's my conversation with Amy Kittlestrom. Now let me introduce you to Amy Kittlestrom. Amy, welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with my audience. Your book rethinks modern liberalism by situating it within the long world, a long world tradition. Uh, but before we get into the book, tell us something about yourself, your background, and how you, how you came to write The Religion of Democracy. Thank you, Lillian. It's great to be here. And, um, you know, a question of how, how the book came into existence is like, well, do I start when I was born? Do I start before I was born? Do I start when I went to graduate school? Because there's a way in which this book engages with <laughs> things that are in, in some ways deeply personal and, and like my own historical forces. But I will say that um, it, it began with a question uh, that I had um, – Actually, as an undergraduate, not a historical question, really a, a philosophical question um, of how is it possible to hold a belief sincerely and at the same time really to respect someone holding a contrary belief? And I thought of this question because I was thinking a lot about cultural relativism and questions of truth and so on which ultimately drove me to graduate school uh, in which I chose to study history because it seemed like the discipline in which everything was included 
nothing excluded, right? And, um, and, and actually the history of ideas, because it's right there at the intersection, history with philosophy, you know, religious studies, literature, all those things that I also like and think about quite a bit. And so I knew that I was still carrying this question, but I was looking, of course, as a graduate student for a, a historical question or a historical problem. Um, and I was at Boston University where I went in order to study with Richard Whiteman Fox, who, uh, whose biography of the 20th century theologian Reinhold Niebuhr had made a big impression on me because it seemed like Richard was able to crawl inside Niebuhr's mind. And that's what I wanted to do. I like to know how other people think. And so that's part of why I went to study with Richard. And I'll also say I went uh, with this thought like, oh, that's funny. He's interested in religion because I'm really not, which was not true. But see, I wasn't fully in touch with myself. And that has to do, again, this is what I'm saying, my biography, because my father was a Luther scholar and uh, was very emphatic about the right way to believe, very dogmatic. So this is actually what lay behind my having this question. Um, and uh, so in any case, um, with Richard, in graduate school, I took a course that he co-taught with Jim Kloppenberg, who at that time was at Brandeis and who soon moved to Harvard. And, um, and, and the course was on the James brothers, William James and Henry James. And, um, you know, I, again, I went into graduate school as such a anti-elitist, always um, thinking about the subaltern and the dispossessed and the other. And I was especially interested in African-American thought and culture. And I really thought for a time about doing a dissertation on the filmmaker Oscar Michaud and how he you know, subverted the white supremacist paradigm. And I mean, I was really into that and thought I was going in that direction. And then I was reading William James on matters of belief uh, and his way of thinking about pluralism. And I just got captivated. And for the longest time, I felt very resentful of it. Like, how did I get captivated by this dead, rich, white guy you know, who's actually is in some ways the embodiment of, of privilege, you know. Um, but it's because his questions were my questions. And so as I got into the readings, I developed truly a historical question, which was the historical question that then drove the research for the book, um, which is, I thought, very simple. And I thought it was quite modest because I was noticing James being obsessed with religion and I was noticing that he wasn't a Christian. He never was. And uh, so my question was just, what kind of religion was that, given that it wasn't Christian? And I began the research um, at the dawn of the millennium, <laughs> right? This book took 15 years to write. Um, and, and I found that that seemingly modest question turned out to be a major key that opened up something central about American history. Well, you touch on a lot of different things, and you're dealing with seven individuals who you describe as liberals. And you also note in your book things like uh, you talk about classic liberalism a little bit. You kind of mention it. So, And we think of liberalism today. And can you talk a little bit for our audience about the difference between classic liberalism and what we consider liberalism today? And these and these people that you're dealing with kind of fill in this gap uh, between how we go from classic liberalism to today's liberalism. 
Yes, right. Thank you for that question, because as you note, in the writing, I really only introduce that aspect in the introduction, and then I try to let go of that language while I tell the story of this construction process, but I, it is something I consider to be a major contribution of the book. So um, just the sort of 101 version of, of liberalism is that students today are taught, and, and I teach it this way too, um, that there was a thing called classical liberalism that came into being around the time of the American Revolution and constituted these basic founding principles of democracy, um, which reconfigures the relationship between the individual and the government so that in a monarchical system, of course, the, the, the ruler is absolute and people have no rights. And in classical liberalism is that idea that, no, in fact, individuals have rights. We call them natural rights. And the only reason they erect a government is to protect those rights. So it's a government by consent. And consent is important because that's choice. And this is the basis for, you know, sort of modern democratic governance. And it um, connects with 19th century laissez-faire liberalism. That is the idea that the government impinges people's liberties. And so it needs to be restricted as much as possible so that people can have those the free reign um, in, in society, and then the way we talk about modern liberalism is as though it's an about face, as though it's a complete shift, a complete 180 overturning of this classically liberal idea. And in modern liberalism, then the government becomes the guarantor of rights and liberties, and it does this by. Uh, erecting regulations and social programs and other kinds of things that are geared toward um, protecting individual liberties. And there's an ongoing argument, right, in contemporary political discourse about the size of the government and is the government inherently oppressive or is it a necessary tool and so on. And so one thing uh, just to make as a point that I don't really bring out so much in my book but is an implication of it, um, uh, and that is that for a lot of people today, if they identify with this kind of modern liberalism and they want to see the government playing this kind of role, um, if that conviction is closed and not responsive to alternatives or different kinds of points of view or different kinds of solutions, in my definition, it's not liberal because it's not open-minded, right? So, so just, to, just to kind of, the, 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 the terms change a lot and... Um, now the word liberal is associated with this fixed set of ideas, these fixed convictions, these almost issue statements. Um, and, and, and the history I discovered really changes that and shows that there's a continuity, uh, a natural progression between these two kinds of liberalism. There's no sharp break at all. Uh, there's a logical consistency um, and that, the um, the idea of being liberal actually emerged in a religious context and that it's about mental practices um, and and uh, you, the, the adherence to convictions, chiefly liberty, right? freedom, so that uh, I can think freely, you can think freely, and I respect your rights to think freely, that it's about being open-minded, not thinking that we've gotten to the final answer, but that the final answer is unknown always. So always open-minded and always inclusive of difference so that 
people who have different beliefs still belong in the same religious fellowship. So it began as a, as a really a church dispute of people talking about who could be in the church and then um, by their logic that every individual should have freedom to develop their potential to the fullest possible ability came the social application to slavery, women's rights, and so on. And then later in the 19th century, when second wave industrialism had developed the economic situation to acute inequality and really exploitation, labor strife, and so on, recognizing that the corporation had become so large that the government was the only entity that could protect that natural liberty. So we go from negative liberty to positive liberty, which is a whole different uh, set of questions. But I wanted to ask you, about, let's get back to the book. What is your main argument? You have a historical, historical argument, uh, and you're trying to counter some things that you see going on in historiography that you think are wrongheaded, or not really, or dealing with the, what's really happening. So, what is that basic historiographical argument that you have? Yeah, there, there's um, several components, and again, I'm glad you um, asked me this specifically because one of the challenges for me in writing the book is that it is aiming to straddle the line between academic readership and a more general public. And so I'm obviously quite comfortable with academic types of conversation, but because of teaching at a state university, I've gotten a sense of how people who don't have the historiographical apparatus for whom instead the word historiography is off-putting, right? How I need to present things in a way that they don't need any prior knowledge to understand it. And so that means that the historiographic debates that I aim to be entering are submerged in the footnotes. I'm not really able to do that work in the text. Um, and so there, 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 there's, there's a number of them, and I, I'm not probably going to be comprehensive in uh, covering them. But one is... Um, about how we evaluate the early republic and the politics going into what we ca- might call the Jacksonian period um, and how so how we think about about politics in that level and so these words conservative and liberal it, it, it typically in in historiography we call the federalists conservative we call the Whigs conservative and we say that the Democrats or the rising Democratic Party, maybe Jefferson, were liberal. Uh, but everybody in my book was a Federalist. I mean, the, the ones who were alive at that period. Um, and, uh, and, and even these people, like, I, I have this scene of, with Ralph Waldo Emerson's father in this very genteel club, drinking claret and talking about ideas. These are the stuffiest, like, you know, wingback armchair people you could imagine. And yet they're liberals, right? So... Um, the argument, if I could just like, uh, focalize it on um, <clears throat> Daniel Walker Howe and Sean Wilentz. So Sean Wilentz has written more than one, but you know, these substantial histories of American democracy in which the Democratic Party is a real hero. It's the party of the common man and the worker and the average Joe and so on. And, you know, like, never mind Cherokee removal. It's a blip. Um, and never mind that the Democratic Party ultimately backs slavery, but, uh, you know, he has this story, and, and Daniel Walker Howe disagrees with him, saying, no, look, the Whigs opposed Cherokee removal uh, and had a lot of um, uh, novel uh, innovations when it came to things like having the government take responsibility 
for things that served the common good. So Daniel Walker Howe instead finds the progenitors of today's um, more modern liberal convictions among the Whigs. And so uh, I would side with Howe, except that I don't think you can quite find the um, – I, I don't think it's so neat. I don't think it's so linear. Um, but uh, But without question, the people who thought of themselves as – guided by these ideals um, were on what looks like the conservative side of the fence. And it, and it links to something else having to do with elite elitism and elites, right? Because this is, in my opinion, one of the mistakes Willens makes just because the democratic party co-opted the vote of the working man doesn't mean it actually served the working man. Right. And um, so for the, 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 the paradox is that, my book is, is is dominated by figures who enjoyed wealth and privilege, you know, not only racial privilege, but economic, you know, these kinds of things. Um, and they used that as a way of thinking about human equality and inclusion. You also talk about the myth of Orthodox American Christianity uh, and that it runs through a lot of writing about America. Talk to me about that. Yeah, that's exactly the next thing on my historiographic list. So um, that to me is the big one, and it came out of the beginning of the project when I when I when I was thinking about this question about what kind of religion did James have. At that time, I was I, I felt quite alone. Right, this is like late '90s when I was starting um, to think about this project and start start the work for it. Um, was there was actually there was just no place in the historiography of American religion that James belonged. And yet he was a huge figure because he was not a Christian. And so as I got into all that work, I saw that there's this dominant, incredibly powerful narrative of orthodoxy as though orthodoxy equals a a specific type of evangelical Protestant Christianity. That's normal, and everything else is declension, decline or falling away from that. And it runs, you know, throughout. So even people who are on the other side of the fence um, from the defenders of that so-called orthodoxy still accept that it was orthodoxy. So first step is I got a lot of company over the 2000s as Lee Eric Schmidt and others started taking seriously non-Christian American religious thinkers. Um, But for me, the biggest um, tool for overturning that dichotomy or or paradigm uh, was when I found that the roots of what I was talking about were actually Christian. So this was the big shocker for me. It actually happened at Princeton the year I met you, because I think you were at the seminary. Right, uh, 2009. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I thought I was looking for the roots of, of this kind of thinking that we could call pragmatism, but I, I kind of try to avoid the word <laughs> to some extent. But, but basically, I was looking for the roots of James's approach to religion, and I was looking among the transcendentalists, and then the bottom fell out. I found out that the roots were actually in the 18th century and that they were totally Christian, biblical Christian. And that led me back to of all places, the Reformation, and realizing that the Reformation didn't only have a doctrinal contribution, which of course it did, but that it also had this 
more abstract orientation that is yoked to the liberty of conscience and the relationship of the individual believer to the divine. Yeah, and this has whole, the whole idea that a theology, reform theology or any theology, has social implications. It's never just, you know, contained within doctrine for the church and for loyal believers. It tends to disseminate and take on other forms. Yeah, well, I mean, in a way, what was going on in, in this argument in the Congregationalist Church around the turn of the 19th century was between um, those doctrines and the orientation. So um, the argument between the liberals and the neo-Calvinists, they're neo-Calvinists because they've taken on the revivalist orientation, which is quite modern, quite new, far from orthodox. Um, you know, the, 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 the people who then became called Unitarians said, you know, the Calvinists are taking the peculiar doctrines of the reformers, not the spirit of what they were trying to do. So the liberals are claiming the spirit of the Reformation. The neo-Calvinists are claiming the essence of it. And then the neo-Calvinists up to now have won the debate by saying, yeah, that's orthodox. And people have just accepted, okay, that's orthodox. But obviously there's actually no orthodox American Christianity because there's no church establishment. Right. And one thing that you do is you go from the Reformation in Europe and you – are claiming also and show that there was an American Reformation. Yes. That all those ideas came over to the America and then they began to change. Uh, yes. What is, why is it hard to see? What is the American Reformation? And you say it's hard to see. So explain that to us. Yeah, well, uh, the, the book that I took that term from is, is a, this documentary anthology by Sidney Alstrom, the great religious historian back in the area, era of religious history when it was more about denominations and change within the institutions. So um, he discovered these 18th century roots, and he named this an American Reformation. But that book was published, published after he died, and people just really didn't engage with it that much. So I'm taking his term, and I'm saying, yeah, it's real. Um, and, and basically, we have a pre-existing, Reformation Christian commitment among New Englanders that's in, hugely intense and central to the way they live their lives and so on. And we have lots of changes so that in my interpretation, by the 18th century, the Puritan era is over. And now we have Congregationalist Christianity in which diverse Christians argue over their faith and actually arguing is part of it because of this pre-existing commitment to the liberty of conscience, which comes straight from the Protestant Reformation. So this is the scene, and I call it peculiar in the book, because it's really intense. It's really different there from how it is in Virginia or somewhere else in the colonies or elsewhere in the world. And so then as the principles of the what we call the Enlightenment, or we call the Age of Reason, or so on, are, are coming over. They're coming over through British dissenting theologians who are unorthodox because the Church of England does have orthodoxy. And yet they're coming into this peculiar context where actually Congregationalist Christianity is established in Massachusetts, right? And, uh, and, 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 uh, so the role of reason, which we take as the hallmark of the Enlightenment, becomes a religious principle. Reason is the voice of God. So I call the American Reformation the, the, the 
the process or movement that happens as these new Enlightenment texts and ideas are coming into the old Reformation Christian scene of New England, and it produces a transformation that ultimately produces the kind of post-Christian religion that William James practiced, and that wide inclusive commitment that becomes social, political, and cultural, as well as religious. And you begin to show this American Reformation beginning uh, in your book with John Adams and his uh, advocacy of intellectual and moral independence. Can you unpack that for the audience? Yeah, absolutely. So this um, idea of, of intellectual and moral independence runs throughout the book. And, and one of the things that was so delightful to me when I was doing the research is, to, first of all, this silly thing that it begins with John Adams and ends with Jane Adams. That's just, that's just the way it happened. Um, but then to find Jane Adams absolutely consistent with this very principle of, of moral and intellectual independence um, is, is, you know, a, a finding that I enjoyed. So um, you have to remember that, of course, John Adams is not a revolutionary, right, when he's when he's a young man. Uh, nobody was at all. They were loyal subjects of the crown, right? And, and um, in that uh, so, so it doesn't begin as a political statement. It begins as a religious statement in this diverse congregationalist church in which people have different kinds of beliefs and, and advocate for them. And he's troubled because he wants to be a minister. He's afraid of getting persecuted um, if, if his beliefs are, are uh, unusual. Um, and he, he, he goes through a process of really testing different kinds of beliefs, different orientations, and settling on something that's his own. And that's when he says, you know, honesty, sincerity, and openness I deem to be essential marks of the good mind. You know, once a man has settled on a, on a, on a theology, he should uh, declare it openly and defend it with boldness, right? So boldness is something we certainly associate with John Adams, and I, I do think that his religious convictions and the process he went through to come up with them helped him become a good revolutionary. Um, but this part of... Um, uh, the honest, the, the the honesty, sincerity, and openness uh, produces the kind of um, moral practices or social social practices of morality that become characteristic of this liberal religious culture. That on the one hand, you, you have to own your beliefs, you have to speak up and take whatever flack for them. This is you know, you know, this Reformation Christian kind of moral integrity. But at the same time, you have to hold them. Uh, with humility, remembering that you're not God, right? And you don't know everything. You're limited. And other people have their own angle, right? That they also need the chance to express sincerely. So it's a, you know, it's a conviction that ultimately becomes a social practice. Yeah, and that's what I noticed about all your, all your subjects here in this book. Every one of them seemed to be very clear about stating what they believed, honestly and forthrightly, which is very different from today of how I think we experience a contemporary situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we're all kind of, uh, you know, trying to hedge our bets. (laughs) Uh, So I think we have something to learn from them. The next person that you have on in your book is Mary Moody Emerson, which I I did not know much about. uh, And I was thinking, what is she going to do with this? Uh, So talk to me about uh, Mary Emerson. And her understanding of liberty as being part of, uh, of being a good Christian. 
Yes. Liberty and thought. It was yes. liberty and thought. Yes. So Mary Moody Emerson is so wonderful, and anybody can read her um, her diary, by the way, online uh, through the Houghton. Um, not the whole thing, but many of her, her diary pages have been scanned. Now, they're incredibly hard to read because her handwriting is horrible. She wrote on both sides of the sheet. The ink is very old, you know, but you can do it. And apparently there are people, uh, uh, scholars whose names I, I don't have right, uh, on mine right now, who are going to produce a printed version of that. So that's just sort of a, hey, you can read about her, too. Um, she's she, To me, the person who helps me the most in the book to um, make this argument that um, liberal Christianity is not like a lesser than kind of Christianity. It's not a falling away from orthodoxy. It's not a lack of sincerity or lack of conviction because there's nobody who, who's more pious, uh, you know, than Mary Moody Emerson, who um, had this huge influence on Ralph Waldo Emerson. And I had known about that. And so that's part of what made me tr- start to pursue her. And then as I started to read her, her papers, uh, I found that, that she's, she was absolutely exemplary of this, uh, willingness to speak her convictions. And you just mentioned uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and you had also talked in a book about how he was one of the reasons why uh, we have this myth of Orthodox um, uh, Christian America, that he is one of the main culprits. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that he... he I mean, he didn't do it intentionally, I know. It wasn't intentional, but he, the way he's... Thought about now. Yeah, so I mean, Emerson. Um, two, there, there are two two ways in which I think Emerson perpetra- helped help perpetrate this misconception, but not on purpose, or maybe three. Well, one is that he was huge. He was just he was just huge, just huge, huge. So important. His figure is so important, um, and. Uh, you know, some people call it America's first public intellectual. There's really something to that, right? That he left the pulpit and he made his living by speaking and writing and so on. And he influenced so many people. And so everybody after him would refer to Emerson um, and not realize that he was actually carrying this whole tradition that lay behind him through his thoughts. So he's actually expressing, of course, there are new things there too. And my book is not a study of Ralph Waldo Emerson. Um, but, but every time I open an essay of Emerson's, I'm seeing his heritage, not his being a renegade. And so, um, so, so one is just that he was so huge. And so he obscured what lay behind him. Uh, two is that he acted like he was a renegade and he was breaking with the past because it did take courage for him to do what he did and so on. Um, and yet in, in certain ways, I mean, he knew about his heritage, but I, he didn't realize how much what he was doing was actually consistent, especially with this thing about moral integrity, intellectual independence. This is exactly what liberals always do. And then the final yeah. one is uh, that his, his, his... Or Channing and Channing. He was continuing on with a lot of things that Channing had already said. Yes, right. But, I mean, of course, a huge difference is that, um, you know, I, I have in there, uh, you know, D- Emerson's uh, Divinity School address. He's praying to virtue. Virtue, I am thine. Save me, use me. Virtue, right? Not God. And so Channing was absolutely a Christian. It, it, it never wavered for him. The Bible was his book. God was his deity. Jesus was his, you know, and, and, and Emerson went 
post-Christian. It, it wasn't that he left the Bible behind or left the Christian tradition behind, but he could no longer fit within the Christian frame because he read and drew religious inspiration from non-Christians, like the Persians and so on. So Channing, uh, his self, the idea of self-culture, and you talk about how that's a sort of a continuation of the, along the same lines of this uh, American Reformation that's progressing. Um, what what do you see? What do you see in Channing in self culture? Yeah, so self culture is it was exactly the thing that made me go to that period, and that's where I thought my book was going to begin. So before I had discovered the 18th century earlier history, um, I had found Channing and read self culture and found it so resonant with um, the the post Civil War period. So self-culture as a concept um, is this uh, kind of religious obligation. So the the way liberals frame um, Christianity is as a a process of trying to, uh, you know, discipline oneself and grow in likeness to God. So likeness to God is another phrase that Channing uses as a a sermon title. Um, Self-culture is the process of doing that. And so this is actually why you need freedom. This is why slavery is wrong from Channing's perspective and and that of a lot of other anti-slavery northerners. Slavery is wrong because slaves cannot grow their self-culture because they don't have freedom. Right? They don't have liberty. Therefore, they can't use their reason and conscience to grow their moral understanding and conduct and so on. And so self-culture is an obligation uh, that Christians have um, in, in, to, to grow in, in virtue. And then the sermon, actually it's a talk that, that uh, you know, Channing uses to li- deliver that, is for working men. Uh, and, of course, the working class has just been born in world history, right, because of, of industrialization and so on. And so here's this elite guy, this incredibly elite guy, who says, I'm a working man, too, which is silly because he's never worked a day in his life in anything physically taxing, but he works on his sermons and so on. And so he's he's actually doing something revolutionary in saying, I have solidarity with the working class. And to introduce when I assign this for my students today, they don't, they, they see him as being so out of touch, uh, you know, and they hear his tone and they're just like appalled in some ways. And then in another way, they see that there's an egalitarian message underneath. Right. And that's a very much a reformation message. The idea that all work is sacred, that all work is important and significant, not just clara, you know, the clergy and what the clergy do. Uh, yeah. very much comes from, from Luther. Yeah. Uh, so that's where that's coming from. Now, throughout the book, I see, and I know you didn't want to talk about it a lot in the book, but pragmatism is everywhere in this book. Yeah. And then we get to William James, and he coined the phrase religion of democracy, which is the title of your book. So I, I see that this chapter is sort of the, it's right in the middle of the book, and it's kind of a transition point to what's, to the people who come after him. So what is the religion of democracy? Uh, (laughs) The religion of democracy is taking the principles of equality and liberty as practical ideals, as um, conceptions or idealized conceptions that people can use to guide their own behavior and their own practice. Um, I actually think that 
James took the term religion of democracy from Thomas Davidson, who's the following chapter. Um, but I, of course, first encountered it uh, in uh, What Makes a Life Significant, where he's also grappling with the problem of labor in his in his era. And um, it, it's, I, I don't mind talking about pragmatism. I'm happy to talk about pragmatism. It's just that I was trying to avoid the technical language, right, in the book. So I'm glad you could still see it there. No, it's still there. And it's sort of like William James makes a transition with religion and democracy from the prior uh, subjects we're really dealing with a lot with the self and its personal integrity but now with Davidson and Salter and Adams you see a transition towards more towards culture towards society uh, that's what I'm seeing uh, so talk to me about Thomas Davidson and his idea about how free individuals uh, could learn to build a better society. It was very optimistic. If you have yeah, these, very if you have these uh, individuals who are self-actualized, who know themselves, who've developed themselves, who are true to their principles, those individuals can build a better society. Is yeah, that's right. That's right. That's his view. And and one of the things um, that Davidson helps us see is that it makes a difference whether you know the people you're talking about or not, right? So Channing delivered an address to working men, but they weren't his friends. You know, James said, oh, let's think about the Hungarian and Italian laborers on the subway. Well, let's have lunch with them, you know, like this. Davidson, for most of his life, was the same. He actually thought that social change would come from the middle and upper classes because they were educated. Actually, they were called the educated classes, right? And so he thought if they can start actualizing this, freely interacting diverse individuals who, through their interaction, come up with a higher order, then then society will gradually regenerate. But then near the end of his life, he actually met an audience of working men and started this breadwinner's college with working class immigrant, mostly Jews, on the Lower East Side of New York. And that spurred his The Religion of Democracy, actually the article he wrote about American democracy as a religion and this, as you say, very optimistic belief. Then he thought, well, if we can just get these individuals, all individuals actually included in conversations and opportunities and so on, we will have social regeneration. But at the same time, Davidson was really insensitive to um, the, the, the potential legitimacy or value of beliefs that he himself had discarded. So even though he was advocating pluralism, in a way he wasn't pluralistic because he made fun of God, you know, like, <laughs> that's kind of <laughs> not very polite. Right. Um, and, 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 and not sensitive to the fact that that's a sincere belief for a lot of people. So he's a real transition point. Okay. And then we go on to William Salter and society of ethical culture, his involvement in that and advocating social justice for the worker uh, and what he, what is called a practical religion. So we're, we're seeing now, I think, well, more clo- we're getting closer to the idea of, of uh, social democracy, uh, what we consider now liberal values of inclusion and that sort of thing. That's right, yeah. So Society for Ethical Culture, I think that in general people have thought of it as, as an elite movement, but um, I, you know, I haven't done quantitative research, but it looks like there, there were working class people in the Societies for Ethical Culture from the beginning. Um, and when Salter was in Chicago, um, this is 
the I mean, this is early in the history of American labor activism, right? This is when uh, second wave industrialism uh, has produced problems that are so acute. There's no workman's comp, right? There are no weekends. There are no limits on women and children. I mean, none of these things had happened yet at all. Instead, we have massive exploitation of especially immigrants, but also native born workers who don't get compensated enough even to feed their families, right? And so he moves to Chicago when the activism around that was starting and most middle class reformers um, actually weren't that sympathetic to the to the laborers because they saw them as being violent or whatnot. And um, Salter, knowing them and fraternizing with them and so on, uh, came to see their point of view enough that he read Karl Marx, Das Kapital. He got involved in the movement for um, the the eight-hour workday, and that's how he was then involved in Haymarket, which the anniversary is just about to come up on May fourth, right? This 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 um, this scene of violence uh, in which um, these so-called anarchists were rounded up and executed for a crime on no proof, you know, after this bomb had gone off, and Salter defended the anarchists, visited them in prison, um, and, and, and advocated for their release, circulating a petition and so on that didn't succeed. But I really helped sharpen his thinking. So exactly as you're saying, this transition point, he helps make that transition to modern liberalism because he says the government is not being fair because it's actually not protecting the rights of workers, but it is protecting the rights of management. And so he's calling, he's among the first to call for the government to change its position so that you just begin to see the emergence of the modern liberalism we recognize. Which, the whole thing of, you talk about the Society of Ethical Culture, and it sounded like it was really an attempt to create, to take this religion of democracy and really institute it as a religion. Is that correct? I mean, they had their own yeah, liturgy. So. And of course, it, it comes from a different uh, stream, and that's one of the things that's really useful about it. I mean, um, it's not it's not derivative from William James, right? I mean, it, it's happening at the same time, right? And so that's part of why it's, to me, persuasive that this was a, 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 a large movement, a significant shift, not just something that's strung along these individuals I'm using to illustrate it. So Felix Adler, the founder of Ethical Culture, was a Reformed Jew who was going to be a rabbi like his father, but lost the uh, necessary faith in God and the idea that the Jews were God's chosen people. He wanted a religion of ethics. And so that's the origin of it. Uh, religion, his motto, deed, not creed, is what you do, not what you believe. And there should be a big tent um, in which people of diverse beliefs can can coexist. It's still um, somewhat paradoxical. Like you see that uh, Salter really thought that eventually you would have the emergence of a common belief system that everybody would agree on where the religion of democracy in a lot of ways instead points to people continuing to have diverse and incompatible beliefs. But right, it's going it. a little step further because you're talking about, when you talked about the society of ethical culture, you talk about how they had their own liturgy, hymns, they had sermons, quote-unquote, they had, they tried to uh, really in a way copy or mimic or replicate what they where they came from without some of the, orth- the orthodox uh, Christian trappings. Yeah, I, I wonder about that question of, of are they trying to mimic or replicate 
or are they doing something new? And maybe Emily Mace, who's working on, on the Societies for Ethical Culture, um, will help us answer that question. At least in Salter's um, sermons and so on, it's not about replicating that. It's actually about giving people things that they think those people need. So, of course, there's the imprint of the Christian tradition on the structure of services and everything. But he, he, you know, this is the pragmatism. He was always considering, is a ritual valuable? Well, it's not valuable because of tradition. That can't be the reason that we keep a belief or a practice. It has to be something we keep because it has a value. It has a positive effect. And so for him, rituals had a beneficial effect. It reminds me of the, the religion of humanity, Comte's uh, religion of humanity. Same sort of thing. Uh, not that they were intentionally trying to mimic in a false way, but they did. It shows that they did not reject religion per se. They right. still truly thought religion had a place, a role. That yeah. religion was important. That people needed religion. They needed the rituals. They needed uh, statements of of faith, whatever they may be. Uh, so to call these this group that you're talking about being sort of godless is not fair. Right, it's not fair. And, you know, it's great you bring in uh, Auguste Comte and his positivism because, um, among other things, it helps us see how relevant these questions continue to be. Yesterday in class, I had a student give a presentation on Dianetics, you know, and Scientology and things like this. And she closed her presentation by saying, so for the first time, science was made into a religion. I said, hey, you know what? You did a great job. It's just not the first time. That's, I mean, that's just the one. (laughs) Comte may have been among the first to actually try to make science into a religion, but he wasn't doing it cynically, manipulatively. He was sincere, right? And people practicing the religion of humanity. Well, he believed in it. He really believed in it. It wasn't just a a ruse. So Jane Addams, of course, comes in here, and she decides to live out her values, not just uh, having a creed of Christianity, but actually living out what she believed Jesus would have done, and and this is when you begin to see her advocacy for the for government to tend to human needs. Yeah. Yeah, so Jane Addams, um, for me, was so much fun to to read more more deeply and so on. For the longest, she's the only person in the book that I hadn't fully, fully researched before I got to that chapter. So I had written the first six chapters, and then I really got it, you know, did the research for her chapter. And I, I was just delighted over and over again by how she helped me illustrate my thesis, right? Um, it was kind of a gamble, um, but not really that much of a gamble because I had read enough to know that, again, this paradox, She she's um, constantly used in the actually extraordinarily small historiography we have on the social gospel movement. It's really striking how how, how, how little has been written about the social gospel movement, but there she is exemplifying social gospel. And on the other hand, when people actually study her or write about her, it looks like she's not even a Christian. So I was really, well, what is it? Is she or isn't she? Well, from her perspective, she was. And the principle of respecting difference was a key article of her faith. And so in Whole House, 
She didn't have Christian services. She didn't run people through a liturgy. She didn't do what ethical culture did, although she's very close with the ethical culture people. And her famous address, The Subjective Necessity of Social Settlements, which a lot of undergraduates read, was delivered at an ethical culture summer school, right? So she knew those people, but she made choices about being inclusive because, as you say, that's what she thought Jesus would do. And so that was her rule of living. And so for her, it was Jesus and the Christian tradition and so on. And at the same time, she was so receptive of, of diverse beliefs and, um, you know, almost mystical toward the end of her life and thinking that there was some cosmic thing that all humans shared. And you just have to keep that in mind, no matter how sort of foul they're being. Sometimes. And she was also very, uh, very connected both to D- John Dewey and the pragmatists, but she was also uh, connected to the theologians at the Chicago Theology School. Yeah. So... She was melding pragmatism with some deep theological ideas, and it wasn't just ad hoc. It was well thought out. I'm doing yeah. some work on. I'm, I'm saying this because I've done some work on Jane Addams recently, so I'm I'm, oh, nice. I'm very familiar with what she's she's doing. So you've got seven people here. How did you pick these seven people? Because I can think of, you know, of other people you could have put in there who's not included. Oh, yeah. You know, Emerson would have been interesting, but, you know, a lot's been done on Emerson, and maybe you didn't want to go there. So, well, so that's the thing. I mean, he is there, right? I mean, he is, he, he's absolutely in the book, and, I, and, 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 and one of the things that I enjoyed doing the most is showing how later people read Emerson. So it's really Emerson through the work that he did for later liberals. Um, but my method was empirical. And um, uh, so I had, I had rules that is um, so, so this maybe if I can get a little theoretical um, that, that the moment when I was in graduate school, you know, I went to college in the nineties. I went to graduate school starting in 97. I was thinking a lot about French social theory and deconstruction and how do we ever know what we know and all of those kinds of things. And um, there in the late 90s, um, there was a rise in narrative history and microhistory. And I could see the appeal of those books a lot. Part of the appeal for me was that you could really know. I mean, you could you could have some you, you were there in the sources. It was specific and bounded. And the claims that the historians make about one particular previously obscure figure. You could say, OK, that's true. But the problem was. You know, it's not that meaningful, right? If it's just one person and they're an exception. And there, by, by this point, then I had gotten hooked on William James, like I said. And so I decided I, I needed to make the history larger than James. I wasn't just going to write another book about William James. I was sure that something would come up by, by doing this, but I didn't know what. Um, and so I decided this is my method just to work through his lived intellectual connections. So instead of instead of going, uh, you know, a priori and thinking, OK, here's my problem. Here's my set of questions. Here. Here's the things I'll study, because the, 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 the content would just be drawn from existing what other people think are important. Right. Instead, I said, no, I'm going to find out who James's most vital intellectual connections were. And so for a number of years, everything I read was either written by William James or um, something he had read. Okay, so I, I just absolutely shielded myself from everything else. I mean, of course, historiography and so on. Um, and I, so that's first, then I discovered Thomas Davidson and William McIntyre Salter. 
as people who are not in the historiography at all. Nobody knows about them. They were hugely important in their time, not just to James, but they were definitely hugely important to James. And so actually the dissertation was pretty much the three of them. Um, and trying to reconstruct this community of discourse around these questions of the relationship between the individual and society and all of those, all of those things. And so then when it came to turning it into a book, you know, which took 10 years, um, I wanted to continue working through those lived intellectual connections. And so, like I said, I was just getting back to Channing, um, and I was already deciding to go up to Adams, uh, because she was absolutely, like you said, embedded in this conversation. She knew all these people, Salter Davidson, Jameson. Um, uh, but then when the when the bottom fell out and I realized I had to cover the 18th century and the early republic, um, I, I found John Adams. I was thinking about it one day. I was like, what am I going to do about the 18th century? And I hadn't decided on the method of the book at all, this seven chapters organized around specific figures. But I picked a, a, a John Adams reader off of my shelf. I opened it up, and I saw that he helped me prove my – like he absolutely fit into the, the conversation. And then um, with Mary Moody Emerson, I had already known about her, and so I, I saw how well she fit. And that came, Mary Moody Emerson came in part when I asked myself the question, what difference does it make if we talk about this period, that is the antebellum, you know, early republic antebellum period, what difference does it make if we talk about it as an American Reformation versus an American Renaissance? And I saw that it made all the difference in the world, right? So it was, like I say, an empirical process, but it's not that these seven liberals are the only ones at all. This is actually part of what was so daunting about the project is I could have kept reading for the rest of my life before I would finish the research because there are so many people involved and they all wrote a lot. <laughs> well, I have I have a question that may end up being a criticism that you might receive. And it has to do with there are no African Americans in your seven. And W. E. Du Bois, uh, Du Bois is to me comes to mind immediately because of his connection to both uh, William James and his connection to Jane Addams. But of course, you know, Du Bois has been mostly cast as being rejecting religion, which Edward Bloom has has recovered that. So, is there a reason why you didn't you didn't go there? Uh, was race going to complicate your your story? Well, race is in the story, and and if you can't see it, then I didn't do a good enough job. Um, like I said, this is an empirical method, and so I so so the thing is, so Du Bois, I mentioned, I I do talk about Du Bois, I talk about Frederick Douglass, I talk about Booker T. Washington, I talk about Elaine Locke, and at the end, I bring in Langston Hughes. So by no means is this uh, a white story, but the but the thing I found because of this method I was using of reading James's sources and his footnotes and so on is that the past is segregated also. The past is segregated because it was segregated, right? And so the fact is, Du Bois is a hugely important person, and in, in future writing, I want to explore him more deeply myself. Um, and he was specifically devoted to the, the race problem. I mean, this is what he had to work on. This is what he sort of ethically was compelled to work on. Um, and so he wasn't moving in the, those circles. He wasn't engaging in those conversations. He wasn't appearing in the same journals, right? Because he was doing his own work. 
And so that's uh, and and so that's really why I wanted to have a bigger role for Frederick Douglass because he was the vice president of the Free Religious Association. Uh, but then when I went to look in his papers, I just that he was doing other things, and those things are important. And he's also somebody I want to spend more time on in the future. Um, but that's actually part of the story that that it that li- the the liberal tradition in America has been disproportionately Anglo Protestant for historical reasons, which is the exact system of, you know, domination and so on that we're unraveling. Here. No, it's fair. It's fair. I just wanted to say that that's what I noticed. I'm thinking, I know that you've had all those people in there. I was just wondering, this is probably a critique people are going to make. The other thing I wanted to ask oh, you yeah. is, of all your subjects, uh, do you have any criticism of them? Where do you think that they failed? Oh, yeah. What what is their what was their what are some of the issues you saw that you just drove you crazy? You know, you're looking back at them and you're going, Can't you see what you're doing? If you just would change this, things would have turned out differently. Uh, and I know we're not supposed to do that, we're not supposed to argue with our subjects, but uh, yeah, you know, it's it, that's a great question. I mean, so first just again on this uh, um, on the point of selection. So I couldn't choose somebody to be um, the focal point of a chapter simply because of their race. Mm-hmm. You understand? Like I couldn't choose somebody because of their subject position. Um, and, and so that becomes part of the story. And so, you know, similarly, of course, you see the subjects being blind to things that I can see. But to me, that became part of my understanding of their moment. So, yeah, like William Ellery Channing couldn't see how out of touch he actually was with the workers when he's urging them to just to find time for study and he doesn't realize they work 14-hour days. You know, like he's, he, like he's, he's totally out of touch. But I can't say um, that it um, angered me to that degree, you know, it, because of my historical distance and because of... You know, that, that's something that I cultivated over the years of working on the project was, uh, you know, exactly that kind of the historicity of it. And so James also uh, bothers me. Like, you know, James calls Booker T. Washington darky. That's a slur. That's horrible. You know, but so for me, though, there's a satisfaction that at least I got to put that in my book. Right. And have that be part of the historical record. So everybody in the book, of course, uh did that to some extent, I have to say, except for Jane Adams. So she was in some ways the hardest chapter to write because I was like, gee, I really like her. You know, like it, it was actually a problem. So for me, with all of the earlier chapters, it was good that there were things that bothered me personally about those people because it helped me with that historical distance. I'm going to ask you a gender question because uh, that's sort of one of my areas of interest is – do you think that how this religion of democracy or this American Reformation took place or was received or worked out uh, differed between the women in your book and the men in your book? Did they have a different concept, in some way different concept of what, it, what equality meant and what, you know, fairness meant? Was there any difference? Okay, so I can't generalize about the women and the men, because again, they're not picked for their the women. Right, I understand that their gender, right? And so they're separated by historical distance. So Mary Moody Emerson did not believe in gender equality, right? She did not believe in gender equality, right? She she was living in a patriarchal system, and she affirmed it. She loved her nephews. I never heard a word about her nieces. You know, I mean, you know, so. Um, uh, she, she did have friendships with women, but she didn't want them to get too uppity, right? So, um, 
she was kind of in agreement, you know, with, with, with her culture. Um, I mean, one thing is kind of sidestepping your question to some extent. But, well, it's like uh, self-culture, a- like self-culture, for instance. Was there any gender aspect to this? Um, I mean, yes and no. I mean, of course, because you can't get away from gender, just like you can't get away right. from race. Class, but did, did, you, did you see like anything, that. obviously, there that... Uh, I know that's not what your book is about, but, I, you know, it's a question I'm constantly asking. How are these ideas in any way gendered or expressed differently by men and women or how they how they, they think it's going to work out? Yeah, I mean, so, again, I would need a much bigger data set yeah. before I could <laughs> okay, that's fair. men versus women. That's fair. Um, uh, and everybody is embedded in patriarchy, right? So nobody's avoiding that. And so I do try to deal with that a little bit in the James chapter. Like, um, people are using... You know that they're 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 sort of their their exemplary person in their mind is male, right? In terms of going through these things again, up until Jane Addams, right? Who 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 becomes a full subject on her own. But one of the things that initially I was going to have a chapter on Elizabeth Palmer Peabody also, and then in the writing it needed to drop out, and and I'm at peace with that. But it would have been three women all unmarried, all never married. And there's a reason for that, right? Because never married women are able to use their brains in a different way, you know, in 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 a in, in the in a, a, a pre-modern society with no time-saving uh, appliances and things like that. Like that's the fact of it. And so there's this whole social element of it. And that's again, Mary Moody Emerson uh, knew that. And said, uh, you know, um, being an old maid means that I can realize the spirit of, of Plato's Republic. She meant she could be a good Republican um, because she didn't have to subordinate her will to somebody else. So it does fit into, you know, the history of marriage and the fact that that is what women were agreeing to when they became wives. So it's very much on my mind, Lillian. So I'm glad you're giving me a chance to talk about it because, you know, when Tocqueville came to the United States and wrote Democracy in America, one of the things he said, like, how remarkable that American women, and he meant Bostonian women, he meant actually these people, are so bright and educated and intellectual and all these things, and then they give it all up when they get married because that's the way the institution was. That's what I'm getting to, that the, the whole idea of liberty the notion of liberty, what does that mean when you're dealing with this kind of patriarchal culture where women are giving up so much in, in marriages? So I would think that women would have a different take on what but liberty again, is. It's that, that's, you know, the, the Christian frame really helps us understand this, right? Because there's, a, there's an equality under God that is the equality that I'm talking about, right? And so women have equal right and duty to grow their understanding and their virtue and all of those things. But then they're in a society that for political and social and economic, you know, is, is complicated. So that's why it's a process. You know, that's why it's it's in flux. Right. So that that's sort of in your book, I can see that here we could probably find in this whole thing, this development of the American Reformation, the uh, religion of democracy. You can also see the growth and the development of feminist thought within that. Yeah. You don't do that work, but I think that that would definitely well, be useful. To some extent, you know, I bring in Charlotte Perkins Gilman um, in my Davidson chapter, in part because she went to Glenmore and so on. Um, but the, the, this idea at the root of her kind of feminism and the kind that Jane Addams had is of equality, right? Okay, so uh, 
What would you like your readers to take away from your book? What's the takeaway? What's the main thing you want them to get out of this book? Because you did write it not only for scholars, but you wrote it for the, the general reader who's interested in this kind of thing. So tell me what you want them to get. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's why it's actually a hard question to ask because it depends on the reader so much. You know, my editor was saying, oh, you know, the thing people really like would be getting to know these seven people. And I thought, really? Because that's not the way scholars <laughs> I think you're going to read it. Oh, okay. So that's news to me, right? So I, I guess if I just can keep the general reader in mind for this one, um, uh, it, it, it's to have a sense of, of heritage or background for their own, like, you know, contemporary uh, commitments, right? So, I mean, one of the things over the years of writing this that's been most striking to me um, is that the um, – uh, Today's liberal Christians, you know, today's Presbyterians and so on, feel really left out of our political discourse because we have this concept of the religious right as though that's where religion is located. Um, you know, and it's not true, and it's a spin, and so on. I don't know if I can affect that spin, but at least I can give individual uh, parishioners some sense that they, they didn't spring from nowhere, that they're actually continuing a long tradition. So, Amy, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, I have one final question. What are you working on now? Well, um, now I'm working on grading, Lillian. Um, <laughs> but um, my, my, the next project I want to work on is actually about soccer, the sport of soccer. So it's very, that's very different. Um, and, and, and it'll have a historical component, but it'll also actually have a prescriptive component. And beyond that, I'm, I'm, I'm actually wanting to do this work uh, on Du Bois and so on, uh, leading up to Baldwin, um, something that, that deals with African-American thought and culture. So Wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. I welcome your comments. Please drop me a note at newbooks.americanstudies at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger. <laughs>